0: We have by far the safest food supply in the entire world. The safest food supply in the world. Let's remember one thing, we have the safest food supply in the world right here in the U.S. It's laughable, we don't have the safest food system in the world.
1: Cut fruit, cut cantaloupe, strawberries, caramel apples, tomatoes, onions, chicken, all these products are likely contaminated. It is a very scary situation where you have a perfectly healthy 17-year-old female, and 48 hours later, she's dying.
0: It was an absolute nightmare. It was definitely from E. coli. If I buy chicken at the grocery store, should I assume it's safe for me?
1: Your primary assumption should be that it contains pathogens such as salmonella and Campylobacter. There are 15 federal agencies that, in one form or another, are tasked with
0: food safety regulation. Food companies hate regulation.
1: They don't think of it as food. It becomes a commodity. Profit is more
0: important than ethics. Consumers would really be shocked at some of the stories that we can tell them. Right now, the government is not doing enough to protect consumers. Regulators have the ability to set the tone that encourages industry to do the right thing.
1: The burden shouldn't be with consumers.
0: It's not acceptable. If the public makes their voices heard, legislators will act.
1: I ate a salad and now I have long-term health effects from it.
0: to the Eat Your Content podcast. I am your host, Rich Herrera. Thank you for joining our pod. You have a lot to choose from, but you chose mine, so I appreciate that. Just a real quick reminder to follow us on socials at Eat Your Content and at Rich Herrera on Instagram, uh, TikTok, and Facebook. So follow there and also follow on the podcast player, podcast player of your choice to be notified of new episodes uh, coming up. I am thrilled to have uh, Bill Marler on the uh, podcast today. He was featured recently in uh, Netflix's Poisoned, uh, the dirty truth about your food. Um, he is a food safety advocate and attorney from Seattle. Bill, welcome to the pod.
1: Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I, I watched the the podcast and I was insanely interested in uh, everything that was going on. And uh, so, tell me a little bit about your background and kind of the twists and turns that led you to the podcast up until that point.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, I I became a lawyer in the late 80s. Um, And uh, in 1993, the Jack in the Box case hit. I'd been out of law school for, you know, basically four years, four and a half years. And, um, you know, I wound up representing a number of the kids that were sick and uh, including, you know, some that died and uh, some that were really quite severely injured. Um, You know, that litigation uh, took kind of on a life of its own. There was lots of you know, legal intrigue and whatnot. But um, you know, by the by, the end of uh, 1995, when all of the cases had been litigated, most of them resolved. You know, I was looking around and kind of started to think about maybe sort of focusing on this area of the law, and I, and I started getting referrals from cases, lawyers from all over the uh, country. Uh, The Odwalla case happened in uh, 1996. Um, And, you know, 1998, I started my own law firm, Marler Clark. Uh, Clark was chief counsel for Jack in the Box during the Jack in the Box case. So between he and I and, uh, you know, one of his associates, we probably were the three most knowledgeable lawyers in the world on foodborne illness litigation. And so, you know, we started Marler Clark in 1998 with a handful of staff and really since then you know we've had i've had a great career uh doing foodborne illness litigation on behalf of victims um but also spend by i kind of tease myself or sometimes i spend 100 percent of my time doing that and then i spend another 100 percent of my time you know trying to you know convince people why it's a bad idea to poison people um and do lots of work um you know, with uh, organizations. I speak all over the world, um, you know, and, uh, you know, work on legislation and um, and continue to do that. And so, you know, it's become, um, you know, more than just a lawyer suing people. It's, you know, in my view, it's it's become kind of a passion for me um, to try to help prevent these things. And we've made, as you can see from the, the documentary, you know, we've made uh some success but we've got a long way to go
0: so did you think when you were a bright-eyed law student first starting out in law that this is where the road would <laughs> no. take you like did you did you have dreams of perry mason and then and then the food mm. safety thing came around I was like oh man yeah. this is where i yeah. want to so, be
1: so um uh i had an interesting way of got, getting to law school um i was uh at age uh, 19 i was the first student, youngest person ever elected to the Pullman, Washington City Council. It's a town of about 30,000 people where Washington State University is where I went to school. And on a kind of a lark, I decided I was going to run for the city council against, you know, a town person. And I won by 50 votes and it was a four year term. And for a period of time, and this is 1976, for a period of time, I was the youngest elected person in the state, or excuse me, in the United States. We had just gotten the right to vote only a few years earlier, 18-year-olds did, and so there hadn't been, you know, very many young, you know, long-haired freaky people, you know, uh, running for office, and I was one of them. And um, yeah, so uh, you know, I kind of became adept at the law and politics in a that kind of way at a really super young age, really comfortable dealing with media and dealing with, you know, complex issues. And so, you know, when I started practicing law, um, you know, I was started picking up, you know, all kinds of cases, uh, relatively high profile very early in my career. So by the time the Jack in the Box case landed on my lap, um, which is kind of how it did, um, you know, I was really probably more prepared than most young lawyers were. Um, and, you know, the other thing too, and I think most of, you know, you and most of your listeners will, will uh, you know, know that, you know, if you offer to do everything, most people will just sit back and let you do it. And I've learned a long time ago that, you know, if you want to get something done and you want to lead the parade, you offer to do all the work and you obviously have to do it. But, you know, that's one of the things I did during Jack in the Box and um, lo- good lawyers, good lawyers who were, had cases just sat back and let me do everything. And by the end of the case, you know, nobody really knew anything other than me. So it was. Yeah. So it's yeah, and that's kind of how it's been since, you know, the you know, the early
0: 90s interesting so how did you get involved in the documentary how did your how did your name come up to be kind of the the face and the somewhat the narrator of the of the documentary
1: so so what happened was um, in I think it was 2009 or 10 I got a phone call from uh, Jeff Benedict uh, who was doing a story about the peanut Corporation of America guy the Salmonella guy that Knowingly sent, uh, sold tainted peanuts, and uh, I was talking to him on the phone, and and, uh, he had just interviewed Stuart Parnell, and I had was in the middle of suing him. In fact, you know, and I I don't mean this in any sort of joking way at all, but I was driving him into bankruptcy, and uh, and and then eventually turned over much of my discovery to the U.S. Attorney's Office, who then prosecuted him criminally, and he's now in prison. Uh, but, you know, Jeff had interviewed the guy and, you know, the guy had given Jeff, you know, his spin on the story, specifically that I am some some evil ambulance chasing guy <laughs> in Seattle ruining his life, you know. And so when Jeff called me, he was I won't say he was uh, I think he was just like a lot of people are They're you know, people are suspect of lawyers, which is probably not a bad thing. But, you know, I mean, and so Jeff was like really kind of asking questions and, you know, and I have dealt with the media for years by then. And I was just like, you know, talking to him. And and then finally, at the end of that, he goes, how did you ever get into this? And I was like, well, you know, blah, 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 and, you know, jack in the box. And he was like, gosh, has anybody ever written a book about this? And I was like, yeah, people talk about it all the time. And maybe someday I will. And that was the last I heard of him. And so for about another month, he calls me back and he goes, "You know, I'm going to write a book about, you know, the Jack in the Box case." And I'm like, "Yeah, right. Well, whatever." And so then he came out to Seattle and we spent a couple of days together, just like talking about it. And uh, and then he started writing it and started interviewing, you know, former CEO of Jack in the Box and you know, victims and the other lawyers and, you know, the whole thing. And so he started this story and the book was poisoned that he actually couldn't get anybody to, to publish. And so he self-published it. Um, and it became kind of a weird cult classic book in like law schools uh, were using it to teach ethics, which was interesting. Wow. And, um, and then it became kind of a sleeper book um, you know at food safety conferences, you know and so it it kind of slowly over the course of years became kind of a essentially a bestseller slowly. and you know now it's sold you know tens of thousands of copies. it's been republished a couple of times. Um, and then in uh, I mean making this long story longer, but, probably in 2015, 2016, um, I got a call from a friend of mine, a, 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 a James Marsden, who's a, a, a really well-respected food safety guy. And his son is an actor, James Marsden, and has been quite successful. Apparently, he was home and visiting the family in Kansas and picked up the book Poison and was reading it and was like, oh, shit, I want to do this. I'm going to turn this into a movie. I'm going to play Bill Marler. And I was like, so I actually met with him in Hollywood and a great guy. And the good thing is he's really good looking. So I thought, shit, that'd be the perfect. I was was worried that they'd have Danny DeVito play me or something. Anyway, that kind of went along for a while and then it sort of petered out. And then just before COVID, maybe six months before COVID hit, uh, Jeff called me and goes, you won't believe this, but Netflix has contacted me, Uh, they've got a producer, a director, they want to do Poison. And that's what happened. And so uh, essentially, you know it, the, and I think it turned out the right way. Um, You know, the first, I don't know what quarter of it is about the Jack in the Wax case, but Mm -hmm. it's not, doesn't really follow the book per se. But what it does do is sort of follow Thirty years of foodborne illness litigation. Um, and but they bring in, you know, people from industry and government and, you know, victims. and yeah, and I kind I sort of, I guess, wind up being kind of the through line between the whole thing just simply because not because I think, you know, I mean, there are so many other people in this movie who I think, Really had great stuff to say, and and I think you know maybe there were some people we should have had in there that you know didn't get in there, but um, you know uh, the fact that I've been doing this for thirty years, you know, I think made the kind of the narration through line make sense that it was me, but you know. I didn't have any control. (laughs) This is the crazy thing is people go, oh, you know, Bill, you, you funded it and you, you know, you manipulated all this. And I was like, you know, to be honest with you, just like, just like my interview here with you, uh, you know, I trust what I do and I trust my knowledge and I trust my ethics. And I, I trust that, you know, uh, that the right thing will happen if you do the right thing. And uh, so I was completely open and honest and transparent with the folks and uh you know but i had no idea how it was going to turn out until it was over
0: so, so i mean it was, it was really very very great and uh just very thought-provoking which got my interest up in, in wanting to interview for my podcast and you, you mentioned the potential of a movie i i think a movie would be great i mean eric brockovich did did a movie and yeah. i thought it was very entertaining so you yeah. know maybe we Revis- may have to revisit that
1: yeah, no no, as, as long as as long as a guy like James Marsden does it I'm all good. But you know, I mean, um yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, that from a personal point of view as like it's it was a little shocking to see all the video of me when I was, you know, 30 32 years old and now I'm 66 years old. It was a little bit shocking, but the good news is I married my wife 35 years ago and so she's had to put up with me the entire time so uh you know i guess it's all good she she still says i look good but you know i'll I'll, you know that's that she's she's paid to say that but you know it's it was it was a lot of i think um uh you know people have asked me and maybe i'm presupposing a question you would ask me but you know the 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 thing that i really 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 wanted to get into the movie was the whole thing about uh, E. coli 0157 becoming an adulterant and that it, you know, absolutely, you know, put me out of the meat business. And, you know, as I said to a lot of people, I said, you know, the only person happy, unhappy with that is my accountant. But, you know, the, you know, I'm glad that that came in and was a big part of the movie because there's so much other parts of the movie. That are pretty depressing you know the sick people the you know young girl you know the, the detweiler's kid dies you know all of that and then outbreak after outbreak and you know you know the government and industry officials don't seem to know what the hell they're doing and you know and but i but to me i think the most important thing for me to come out of this movie is that these problems are difficult you know they're not easy to solve um You know, there's lots of competing interests and financial interests and stuff, but you know, if we could fix (laughs) E. coli and hamburger, I think we should feel good that we can fix these other things. Maybe not perfect, but you know, humans aren't perfect. (laughs) And so, but you know, I, I just feel like we can keep striving to do better. And that's what keeps me going. You know, I mean, I don't have to work anymore if I don't want to, you know. Uh, but this isn't work for me. It's, 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 you know, I, um, I get depressed sometimes, be honest with you, you know, uh, like, uh, talk, I talked to, we're having a Listeria outbreak here in the state of Washington, you know, six people have died, or just six people have been sick, three have died, and I've been retained by some of the families. And just to talk to, you know, a woman, you know, her husband's, her husband died the day before their 45th wedding anniversary. Mm. I Just go you know, from eating a milkshake, you know, and with Listeria tainted milkshake because the restaurant didn't clean the equipment as well as they should have. And my 35th wedding anniversary is Saturday, and I cannot imagine living my life without my, my spouse, you know, and to have it randomly happen by a milkshake is, I mean, I think that's what, you know, should um, – I think that's what should people in this in our business, in the food business, need to pay need to pay attention to. They can't be depressed about it, but they need to have that in the back of their minds that, you know, what we do, what they do is so incredibly important. So anyway. Okay.
0: Well, let's let's dive into the documentary a little bit. Uh, we'll hit some high points and, and not go through all of it, but just kinda get people understanding what it's about and kind of talk. Talk deeper into some of the topics that I found interesting uh, on, the, sure. on the on the on uh, the documentary there. So, if you have not seen it, it's streaming now on Netflix. Poisoned: uh, The Dirty Truth About Your Food. It tells the documentary basically the story is um, the food, you know, the food system here in the U.S. and who is ultimately responsible for the health. Uh, and safety of the food—is it the consumers, is it the government—is a combination of both, um, and that story is told through some some harrowing stories. So we we talked a little bit about uh, well, the documentary opens up with. Uh, the, the repeated mantra of the U.S. has the safest food system in the world. It kind of ironically played over and over again at the at the beginning there. So um, it, it, we there are issues with our food supply here in the U.S., certainly. In reality, how does our food supply compare to other developed countries? Is it sure. on, on a scale? Is it better, worse? I mean, is it really the safest food system in the world, or is that just a billboard saying?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly a billboard, uh, uh, and it's partly true. Um, And I think that one of the things, uh, the U.S. is way more accurate at counting people that get sick than they do, you know, around the world. I've, I've spoken all over the world on food safety topics, and most countries just sort of use our CDC numbers of attributions of food and illnesses extrapolate to their populations. They just don't do, many countries just don't do the kind of deep dives that we do. Give an example. I'm consulting on a E. coli outbreak in France that's linked to uh, 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 Nestle pizzas and it's likely the dough was contaminated, or the flour was contaminated. There are there 62 HUS cases. Um, they don't monitor non-HUS cases, you know, so, you know, 62 HUS cases. We had 70 HUS cases in the Jack in the Box outbreak. That tells me that this French outbreak was probably several hundred people sick and probably 250 of them hospitalized. So, you know, it, it, you know but they don't count those numbers. Um, you know, I think there are things that other countries do a bit better when it comes to dealing with salmonella, um, but you know, um, you know, you you see, you know the import chains that you know coming from, you know Africa or South America. You know, you know Europe. Europe has the same issues. Um, they're just not as big and as necessarily as publicized. Um, you know, I, I have a case print, printing in South Africa right now where I'm helping consult on a case. A thousand people got listeria. Two hundred died from eating poloni. So I you know I don't I don't think that you know, saying that we have the safest food supply in the world is, is enough. We just need to, you know, sort of put, put our money where our mouth is and need to drive these numbers down, which we, we have the, we have the technology. (laughs) We can do this.
0: So. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the the opening uh, case in the documentary. He talked a little bit about it with the Jack in the box case. That was the, the, uh, the case that sent you off on your hero's journey, so to speak. Um, the, The part that that got me was they sent 4 million pages of documents. Uh, and, and I've seen enough law dramas to know what that's about. They're trying to bury you in paperwork. And did, yeah. did you really read through 4 million pages?
1: Well, it was a million. So, it, so <laughs> 4 million would have been a, even a bigger channel.
0: Or a million, channel, right, correct. But,
1: uh, yeah, but, but you know, um, it, that's not, you know, that's, uh, uh, that is about, you uh, 400 beacons boxes uh, of material, and um you know I didn't do it all by myself, but I did it with a, a team of people, not very many, four, and we just took over, you know, a, a kind of a conference. Well, it wasn't even a conference room; it was more like a warehouse with a big table, and we just decided we were going to power through every single one of those documents, and you know, after a while, um, they, they started to make sense. you know, once you look at documents enough, they start to make sense. and you're kind of collating them down and, you know, you're trying to figure out really which box goes with which document and things like that. And, yeah, eventually we started finding things that were just like, you know, I was like, really? they, they knew that. And so, yeah. And then that prompted depositions, you know, subpoenas and, you know pretty quickly um i think it was probably by october ish 1994 i had sort of finally put it all together so it took a a good you know year 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 and 3 or 4 months
0: and the, the crux of the Jack in the Box case was essentially the cooking temp where um, Washington state had a higher standard than the federal regulations of, of cooking yep. meat, ground beef to an internal temperature of 155. Correct. And Jack in the Box knew that, but disregarded it yep. for because they said it would the, the beef would be tougher or something like that. And as a result, this, this happened. So that so in this one would you contrary to the georgia pca one where where right. that dude was was a jerk was right. this more negligence yes. and willful That's, negligence versus
1: right it's this was not criminal i mean in a, in the sense of knowingly shipping salmonella tainted peanut butter but you know under the you know civil rules of uh products liability law i mean and you know, a hamburger is a product just like a, you know, a, a SUV is a product. You know, there and and it has component parts, and one of the component parts was, you know, hamburger that was supposed to be cooked to 155 to kill E. coli O157. That's really no different than putting a faulty gas tank in a in an automobile. You know, the automobile manufacturer is still responsible for where, if the car blows up. If and so it's the same thing. Um, and uh yeah i mean it, they could have a couple things you I mean, one had e coli 0157 been an adulterant that the product never would have had e coli in it so you know and the meat was highly contaminated so the, it was that was a problem but in 1992 1993 you knowingly could manufacture e coli contaminated hamburger and sell it to consumers you knowingly could do that and so You know, there was no rule about it, but there was a rule in the state of Washington to cook hamburger to 155 because our state authorities had the vision to think about how to combat what what had been a growing problem of E. coli outbreaks linked to hamburger. Yeah,
0: and I think the part uh that— infuriated me the most was not the Jack in the Box case in and of itself, but kind of what outgrew from that, where you know the, the larger state or federal investigation kind of got involved in the USDA at the time looked at these parents in the eye and said, look, basically, you know, it's your fault. You didn't, you, you got to cook the meat yourself and, and you have to make sure it's safe for your family. There's, there's no, no responsibility on the, the manufacturer's side of that. This is all on you to, to, uh, to take care of this. So your kid died. That, that's your fault. That's, that's not, that's not the manufacturer's hey, fault. Hey, I and, deal
1: with that all the time still now, you know, it's like, uh, you know, if I have a case now, you know, salmonella is not considered an adulterant and, um, uh, You know and there's a great quote from someone who is the head of a red meat association back in 1994 when uh the usda deemed uh e coli and hamburger an adulterant she says well that's not fair you know you're you're making this an adulterant in the hamburger but you're not doing anything about salmonella and chicken (laughs) and i'm like yeah you're right (laughs) it's not fair we should make both of them adulterants but you know um it, that is as you can tell it, even in the in the documentary there, there's a level of frustration i have with it's not like we haven't made some progress and and frankly we've made a lot of progress and we've made a lot of progress in you know treatments for children who get sick and 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 for adults who get sick but i just feel like we could do so much more if we sort of stopped with the we have the safest food supply in the world or we parents should be the ones that, you know, do it, or I should be have the freedom to do whatever the hell I want to do kind of attitude. I think if we sort of work together, um, you know, manufacturers doing better job government doing a better job of inspecting and, you know, and not to take, you know, responsibility away from moms and dads and, you know, and, and employees at uh, restaurants that they need to follow the rules too. And, you know, and and I think it, that is what has made E. coli O157:H7 less of a problem in hamburger. I mean, I've told this to I've countless people. You know, 95% of my law firm revenue in the 90s and early 2000s was E. coli cases linked to hamburger. You know, today that's zero. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's – Crazy. Yeah,
0: it, like you were saying earlier, that's that's bad for your accountant, but that's good for for us.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: that that is one of the success stories of the Jack in the Box exactly. case was the yeah. almost elimination, complete elimination of E. coli from ground beef. And yeah. we mentioned Salmonella and and chicken, and you mentioned that in the documentary. It's, you know, it's the same exact thing, different bacteria, different animal. But why is it so much more difficult today to do what Mike Taylor did in the 90s about E. coli and ground beef. Why is it so difficult today to name salmonella as a as a uh, a banned substance?
1: Yeah, I mean the you know it the the poultry lobby is very strong. There's this undercurrent of uh, you know it, it, you know still within the USDA that it's the consumer's responsibility. It's not you know the meat industry's responsibility. You know, there's also one of the things that I think probably came out in the documentary really well is, is that there's there's so much disjointed um, uh, government regulation that you know we have really no authority to go to like egg producers to work with them to rid them you know of salmonella. So then the eggs get contaminated with salmonella then the chicken becomes contaminated with salmonella you know but the USDA has no authority over you know chicken farms their 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 authority only starts when they're in the slaughterhouse and when they're being slaughtered and by then it's too damn late <laughs> it's late right and so you know we need an a, it's a cliche word holistic but we need really a holistic look at our food supply you know, as it relates to salmonella, you know, from beginning to end, Europe does that. You know, and if if Bill Marler got a magic wand, you know, I would be looking at salmonella in chicken just like the way we look at bird flu in chicken. You know, if if there's a flock of animals sick with bird flu, what do we do? We go in, eradicate the flock. I think if you do the same thing with salmonella, over time, you're going to Lessen the load of salmonella that's in these flocks that get to slaughter facilities. It's sort of the same idea about why are we still having E. coli outbreaks linked to leafy greens? Look at the video. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to go, wait a second, we're growing this product outside. It's a risk, it's not doesn't have a kill step anyway. Why are we growing it so close to (laughs) cattle feedlots? You know, that and and but yet again. U.S. government has chosen not to take control over those environmental issues. You know, hey, you and I, if we got to make this decision, we would, you know, deal with these flocks, we would deal with these cattle feedlots, and we would see a significant decrease in the number of foodborne pathogens in food.
0: That's what I was wondering on the documentary where they, they grow the leafy greens so close to these feedlots. I'm like, why are why are we doing that? I, I don't, like, I don't understand the logistics behind that. I, if we know that this causes this, then then why do we continue to put cows I, yeah, so I, close I, to leafy greens? I,
1: I, yeah, no, again, I'll tell you exactly why. So, um, the cattle feedlots were there, and they had been there for long, 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 long time. Um, you know, when uh, leafy greens started to become more popular uh, in the you know, as a health, as we tried to become more healthy, and and as people started wanting more and more leafy greens, you know, you needed more land to grow. And so you keep moving them closer and closer to higher risk areas. And then when you combine that with also trying to do value added products, like wash it and chop it and put it in a bag. So the only thing you have to do is open it up and pour it in a bowl. When you start doing all that, and you're moving them closer to cattle feedlots, you're creating your own worst nightmare. And so it's it's really there was no person, no people, no nothing thinking about what was going to happen to you know when we started having so much convenience. And give you an example: in the 2005 spinach outbreak, E. coli spinach outbreak, 205 people sick, five dead. Um, you know, that product was all on one 20-acre farm cut on the same day. There had been wild pig intrusions into that field. They didn't poop on every single leaf, you know. And had the spinach been you know, harvested the old-fashioned way in bunches, there probably wouldn't have been an outbreak at all. But you'd harvest it all on the same day. It went into the same facility. It was triple-washed, chopped, bagged. It was shipped all over the United States, most of the illnesses occurred in Michigan, Minnesota, and Ohio. Why? Well, they spent a couple, two or three days traveling across the United States in trucks. So, you know, the bacteria got to grow a little bit in those bags, and they got to a point where the infectious dose was enough to make people sick and kill them.
0: Wow so let's i want to play devil's advocate for just a minute because the the the, uh the documentary really lays out the case for how do we fix this uh foodborne illness problem in our food supply and and the answer kind of came to be well you know government regulation we need to regulate some of these industries a little bit more so just kind of playing the other side of the coin there uh, a lot of people may be quick to say you know it's, it's personal. We're, we're talking about personal responsibility. Like if I don't want to kill my kid, I need to make sure I cook my food long enough. I need to make sure I wash my leafy greens as best as I can. I don't need the government coming in and telling me what I want to do. So where is that fine line between government regulation and personal responsibility?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's welcome to America. You know, I mean, that's, right. that's, that's you know, and, and, and it's funny. I was just, before I was talking to you, I was talking to a, a group of food safety professionals, and one guy at the end was like, oh, I don't care what you say, I'm still going to eat steak tartare. And I'm like, well, you know, if you get sick and you die, uh, you know, your wife is probably going to call me and say, you know, and and, and, and the defense is going to say, well, this guy knew better, too bad, you know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, there's a fine line uh, between personal responsibility and lawsuits and stuff. And, I'll, and let me explain something to you, Is I think it's really important, is that when you walk into a courtroom, there's 100% liability, okay? Somewhere in the courtroom, there's 100%. It, and it may be allocated to the defense, it may be allocated to the plaintiff, depends on the plaintiff. For example, if I'm a 12-year-old kid I come home from school, I'm hungry. I whip out you know a frozen patty and I cook it and you know I do the best I can because I'm 12 and I you know I'm hungry and I wind up sickening myself with E. coli 0157 H7, you know because I you know mishandled it or I, I, I held on to the frozen patty when I put it in the and then I licked my hands not knowingly, and I get sick and I have acute kidney failure. Is a jury going to say, ah, it's that 12-year-old's kid. That's all his fault. No, they're not going to do that. But same fact, if I did it, people would laugh, you know, and they wouldn't give me any money. And that's and that's the way the system is designed to work. There's There's levels of fairness. But putting all that aside, if there is a way to solve the problem so you don't have to make those kind of personal kind of well, I'm going to be fair to this guy, not to this guy. You know, if you can say you can't have E. coli, you can't have cattle shit in hamburger, you can't have, you know, some, you can't have chicken shit on, you know, on chicken. And, you know, the technology exists to fix those problems. We can test products better. We can, you know, make sure that cattle feedlots are. Two miles away versus across the street. I mean, there are things that we can do because ultimately we all have to pay for the burden of these people getting sick and die. We pay it through insurance premiums. We pay it through, they don't have insurance, we pay it through our tax dollars. So it's, we're in this together. We always like to kind of be the cowboy on the range and, you know, the guy living in the woods. But that's not how it really works. You know, we're all in this together and we all should care for each other and take care of each other. Um, Not fully on nanny state kind of thing. And I get that. But I think where we're talking about are, you know, fixing problems that solve problems and think about it from the hamburger industry. They didn't want E. coli as an adulterant. They said, all the world would fall apart. You know, the the chicken little is going to have this whole big problem. And the fact of the matter is that it was a blip on the screen financially to them. And they're making tons of money and they're selling tons of product. And people are eating hamburger all the time. So, you know, regulation can actually wind up benefiting the industry. They just don't like to be told what to do.
0: Yeah. I mean, what a novel thought. If I if I create some products that, you know, don't inherently kill my customers, then, yeah. you know, I might make some more money and not having to pay out on lawsuits. So, it's cool. um, so,
1: anyway, so I, I, I think we can do I think I hear what you're saying and I, I, I absolutely respect and I respect that you're doing it as a devil's advocate, too. But, you know, I, I think it's that's why I think that there's still a place to educate people about food safety. You know, and I think we do a really bad job of that. You know, I mean, I still go out to dinner with friends and, you know, somebody orders a hamburger and they want it, you know, medium rare. And I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, you're know, you an idiot. Oh, yeah, I should be able to do what I want. And I'm like, "Oh geez. you know, you get sick and you suffer a stroke and your poor wife has to take care of you for the next 10 years. I mean, don't be an idiot. You
0: know, so So, reach across the table, smack it out of his hand, right? No, I do.
1: Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why no one ever wants to go out to dinner with me.
0: So, uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about the, the, some of the champions that you had on the documentary, really championing cause of food safety from, from a government standpoint, you had um, Democrat Rosa DeLora uh, from Connecticut, really a a champion for that. And then back in the nineties was Mike uh, Taylor, the USDA that put his foot down and said, this is an adulterant and we're not going to have it in our food. You said in the documentary that uh, the power that Mike Taylor had, the current USDA uh, Deputy Undersecretary Sandra Eskin has that power right now to take care of uh, salmonella and chicken and, and name it as an adulterant, and then we could do what do for chicken what we did for ground beef. So, And you also had uh, a former Trump appointee, Mindy Brashears, who who is a former USDA Undersecretary that Uh, According to the, uh, the documentary was basically in the pocket of a lot of lobbying groups. Um, So I'm going to ask this because of the way it seemed to be framed to me in, in the documentary which side of the aisle do you feel is more apt to take up the cause of food safety it, it to me it seemed like Democrats more than than Republicans and, and I think because of the the question I asked before right Republicans are, are all about personal freedom personal liberty and, and Democrats is about you know trying to enact regulation and places that need it uh, so do you find that Democrats are, are more willing to work with you than Republicans Yeah. so
1: so I'll give you a a real-world example. So, um, you know, after the Jack in the Box outbreak happened, uh, not only was E. coli o h 7 considered to be adulterant, but there also was an enormous uh, push uh, to really sort of relook at how FDA was structured. You know, that it was too reactive and needed to be more proactive. And You know, so there are many of the things that eventually wound up in the Food Safety Modernization Act were actually discussed in with senators and Congress members in 1994, 1995. And then in 1996, you remember this fellow, Newt Gingrich, Mm -hmm. when the House flipped and, you know, and it became Republican, there was no discussion about food safety legislation for a decade. And then when the House flipped back to Democrat and we were having these ongoing, this peanut corporation and the lettuce, you know, the leafy green problems and, you know, the pot pies and, you know, blah, 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 blah. That's what prompted, you know, the Food Safety Modernization Act. But many of those things that were discussed and became the Food Safety Modernization Act was eventually passed in 2010. Most of those things were on the shelves of Congress members and senators from the 1990s. So it's, but again, you know, that's who's in power, but but also too, at least on the House side, you know, the Food Safety Modernization Act was probably the mo- one of the most bipartisan pieces of legislation, and maybe one of the last ones that we've seen. And so, you know, I always look at it like, the reality is, yes, it's true that it's a little easier to have these discussions with, you know, Democratic Congress members, Democratic senators, and Democratic administrations, absolutely the case. But it it shouldn't be that way. You know, I mean, I don't, you know, uh, you know Obama you know said it's not a red state, blue state. It's the United States. Yeah. and I kind of look at it the same way with respect to food safety. It's like you, you know, you could be a libertarian, you could be a Republican, you could be a Democrat, you know, you still can get sick from e. coli contaminated hamburger, you know. And so I think uh, this personal freedom thing is I think a you know a a little bit of a red herring um, you know to you know that I don't want people to tell me what to do until something bad happens. I mean, I get hired by Republicans all the time whose kid got sick or they got sick. And the first thing they say is, I don't like lawyers. I don't like lawyers. Uh, I don't like people who sue. But this is different. This is different because this happened to me and I got really sick. And I want to take every penny from them you can get. And, you know, (laughs) that says it all to me.
0: It's not a problem till it happens to to me, right? Yeah. That's that's yeah. kind of the attitude. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a shame. That's a shame. I'll, I'll be it's honest shame. with you.
1: I think I, I mean, but the thing is is that, again, you know, I know that the documentary can people were freaked out like, I'm never eating this or I'm never eating that. And I get that. Um, uh, but you know, part of it is you're you're trying to shake people out of their complaints complacency. but the you know, all of these problems are, you know, not completely soluble, but you know there there are are there E. coli cases linked to ha- hamburger? Probably there are. Do they or they happen very often now? No, but you know I wouldn't go out and eat a rare hamburger either. Um, you know it can get you know O157 salmonella or Campylobacter can get through the system. It's unlikely, less likely today than it was 30 years ago. But you know I, I again I still think there's more to do people shouldn't, you know, people should not feel like it's a worthless endeavor. Um, You know, food safety professionals around the world are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, you know, educate. Um, But you know, there's, I think there's some, some things that are, in my view, kind of simple to do. We just have to find the political will to get them done.
0: Yeah, you know, speaking of that political will, one thing that frustrated me to no end was watching the interview between Sandra Eskin and uh, Frank Giannis. I, I think the amount of spin that they were doing was dizzying, just dizzying. And the amount of not my problem that I heard coming out of them, uh, well, more from Sandra, I think Frank just kind of sat there most of the time. But just the amount of spin and the amount of, well, that's this isn't my problem is – it's insane i just i just don't i didn't understand like when we talk about mike taylor he made a decisive decision he made he took action and through the clinton administration got it done and, and yeah. then we're sitting here watching sandra eskin have that same power and just be like mm, i don't know
1: yeah i mean you know sandy and frank uh have, yeah, i've known for a long long time and you know prior to this documentary they i would probably count them as my friends <laughs>
0: <laughs> Not so yeah, much. I have, so you have no Christmas card this year. <laughs> yeah, no Christmas card this year.
1: And but you know, they they in their prior roles. Um, and and frankly, I think Frank has moved the needle a lot before he left FDA. I think, you know, his his work towards implementing more transparency at FDA. I think, you know, he's done a lot of work. And you know, there's there's lots of things that the public probably doesn't recognize. And Sandy was. A star during when she her work at Pew and uh, you know, but for the work that Pew did and the financial support that they gave, the Food Safety Modernization Act would not have passed. And uh, but I think when especially someone who sits in a position at USDA, that that organization is primarily its goal-driven is to promote U.S. agriculture and. FSIS is like the proverbial red-haired stepchild, um, and it's kind of like a weird place to have a food safety organization. Um, and uh, it's sort of the same problem with, you know, food over at the FDA. I mean, the FDA is mostly interested, and, is, and, and, and things that they should be is like drugs. I get it. But, you know, food is kind of a second kind of tiered problem at the FDA. And so you know, that's where I've been, you know, aligned with Rosa for a long time. It's not an easy thing to do, but having a food safety nutrition, you know, agency that is concerned about stuff that'll kill us quickly and stuff that may kill us long-term, you know, and, and with respect to food. And, you know, we could do a much better job of, you know, of organizing this and giving, you know, industry good guidance, scientific-based guidance, that you work with the industry and, you know, you know, even, you know, Mindy Boucher's and I kind of agree in many respects that, you know, before you go to regulation, is there a way to have that communication with the industry? The problem is, you know, how, when do you stop talking and when do you just say like, okay, we've talked enough, let's get at this, you know? So, yeah, it's, uh, Uh, yeah. Was yeah, interesting. I think, I'm glad you brought that up.
0: I mean, I, I think the thing with industry in general, big-eye industry, is they're never mm-hmm. going to do anything until you make them. Um, and, and that's unfortunately where, where we are. I think some of that is starting to shift a little bit with, uh, you know, like ESG guidelines on environmental safety and, and the consumer now has, has changed a little bit and is looking for those things in companies. How, how's your yes. social, yes. How, what's your social philosophy? So yes. again, it's the dollar that's talking, but for most of these things, it's, you know, unless you tell us to do it, I'm, I'm not going to do it. So speaking of those, speaking of those um, kind of gaps and in, in in government regulation, you have these private companies like the LGMAs of the world and the Tim Yorks of the world kind of stepping in and saying, don't police us, we'll police ourselves. So what you're fairly, you're fairly kind in the documentary, but what's your real thoughts on those <laughs> private organizations like LGMA? Because, you know, nice yeah. guy, Tim York, I'm sure away from yeah. whatever he does for a living, but did not look great in the documentary.
1: Yeah. So, 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 um, I think sometimes the purpose, the the best thing that these semi quasi private industry quasi governmental entities can do, is to try to pick off the low uh, hanging fruit of how to try to fix things, and then get to a point where it's clear that you know we've come to the time where it's still not working. And it becomes clear that you've got to get you know uh, a broader based um, you know a broader based uh, regulatory model that treats everybody or most people relatively the same. And and in some respects, I think the work of the LGMA has kind of proved that point. You know, Um, and you know the the fact of the matter is is like think about this: (laughs) the government of Canada refuses to allow. California romaine lettuce to come into Canada this fall. Wow. And that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing. Yeah, and they require that it say where it comes from. So consumers, you know, and and, and so consumers know. And that has to in they have to the only way they allow it in is if they test test it and the testing regime is really pretty rigorous. I mean, you know, when you get back, we have the safest food supply in the world. Well, guess what? We've been poisoning Canadians with our leafy greens for about a decade. And they're just like, okay, thanks, guys. (laughs) We've had enough. And, you know, to me, I look at it and go, why does that make any sense? You know, why aren't, you know, why aren't, why, why is the leafy green marketing folks going to government and saying, hey, look, we need to deal with you know, the outflow of cattle feces from these feedlots to get into our water supply. I mean, pick up, Google E. coli today. And it's it's all over the news, not necessarily in leafy greens and stuff, but it's places you can't swim. It's places you can't go and people getting sick in, in pools because of E. coli. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is we, we need to deal with that environmental problem and we're not. Just like we're not dealing with salmonella at the source in the eggs and the broilers before they get to the slaughterhouse, we're not dealing with it, and and that's kind of the regulatory mind shift that I think we need to get at. So we stop, you know, we stop, you know, the the need for an LGMA, or maybe we keep something like the LGMA and you know use them as you know to fix little problems or to be test cases and things like that but yeah that yeah tim's not going to send me a christmas card either
0: <laughs> so let, i want to talk about um somebody that really pissed me off watching this documentary Stuart parnell and the pca
1: uh, yeah.
0: this was the most infuriating thing that i have ever seen that this guy and this is different from jack in the box jack in the box sure. was just negligent yeah this was willful wanting to hurt people for profit and yep. just was awful. Now you were involved in this okay. case, right? Right. It was, it so was, tell, yeah. tell us a little bit about that.
1: So um, there was an outbreak. Uh, of several hundred people sick. Nine people died. Um, I represented a lot of the people who got sick and the many of the people who died. And we sued and bankrupted Stuart Parnell. And during discovery, we had learned a lot. And then also the FBI came in, you know, about the same time we were there. And you know, collected a bunch of emails that showed that uh, you know that uh, you know big big suppliers, uh, Kellogg being one, uh, that make the little crackers that last for a thousand years in vending machines. Um, the uh, they had certificates of you know the required certificates of analysis that product uh, lot be tested for salmonella. And what was happening was. The, the lots kept coming back positive for salmonella. So then Stuart said, hey, let's send out, you know, five samples from the same lot to five different uh, labs. And sometimes they'd come back negative. And he'd use those negative tests, even though other tests from the same lot came back positive. So he'd use the negative, And then eventually they would all come back positive. And so then they started just forging certificates analysis and sending the product anyway. And, you know, it, it really became a situation where the positive tests, instead of dealing with why they were positive, the positive tests became a reason that he needed to come up with a strategy to get around that. And eventually it was like, just ship it. And
0: I mean, that's awful. Just some real evil villain mustache twirling stuff. Just
1: yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. And you know, and I remember for the longest time, you know, I would get nasty letters and phone calls from Parnell family members, you know, basically blaming me for his downfall. And you know, and uh, you know, again, it's it's you know, I'm sure. Stuart probably is in that camp where, you know, uh, you know, it should be the responsibility of other people, but, you know, and, but I'm not going to take responsibility for what I did. So, yeah, it's, it was, it was, it was really sad and, you know, and some really kind, nice people got quite sick and died and, you know, and, you know, all all from eating peanut butter. I, I always remember there's one guy and I, and actually, Uh, They had some video testimony of of the son testifying about his dad. A triple Purple Heart, either a double or a triple Purple Heart winner from Korea, Uh, you know, I mean, shot up, you know, drags himself back, you know, uh, saving his buddies and he eats some peanut butter and dies. I mean, that's just nuts, so to speak. So just nuts.
0: So, yeah, to, to face war like that and to die of something. Yeah. So avoidable, so avoidable. Exactly. And all, all the effort that he took to covering it up yeah. could have been used to find out what was going on and would have had different results, but he spent so much time and energy and money covering it up. <laughs> it's crazy. It's I don't, really crazy. I don't, don't understand, I don't understand that.
1: Either.
0: I don't either. So one thought, one part I thought was kind of funny. I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but w- you get to the section talking about chicken with salmonella and Purdue was the only chicken manufacturer that agreed to go on camera and talk, you know, bless their heart, they, they did it, but I think it's because they believe their own hype. I mean, they, they really, they really think, and I've seen their commercials, their marketing's great. They, they come multi-million dollar conglomerate in their, uh, advertising makes them sound like it's the farm down the road where you can just you know get a chicken from your local store, or your local farmer. But they believe their own hype. They say, hey, we, we're taking control. We got this taken care of. And then you go and test the chickens. And they're the only ones that are coming up positive for on that very small sample size. And then he's like, oh well, you know, that's that's not a fair sample size. You need to test 150. And like, okay, we'll test 150. And his came out the worst. So I I don't know if that was intentionally to be funny, but I thought it was hilarious.
1: Yeah, it was, I remember, um, uh, when the uh, producer director, they were talking about doing testing and, um, and they were going to do like five samples at the very beginning. And, and I was like, you know, I, I said to them too, I said, you're not going to find anything. So, you know, I, I, you know, you, you don't probably know this and most people don't, but back in 1990, no, 2000. 2008, uh, I spent $500,000 testing hamburger across the United States um, uh, to see if it contained other shiga toxin producing E. coli's. And in the reason why is because I had asked the USDA why they, you know, banned E. coli 0157, but not other shiga toxin producing E. coli's that we knew caused human illness. They said, well, we don't know if it's in the meat. I'm like, "Well, haven't you tested it?" And they're like, "No." And I'm like, "Okay, I will." And I tested it and found that you know, it was in there and then I used that as leverage in a petition to get them to change their you know, their mind. And so, you know, with respect to when they when the uh when the, the producer said, "Well, should we do testing?" I'm like, "You're not going to find anything." And then when they had salmonella infantis in you know, a test for Purdue and then Purdue goes, "Well, 150 would be a better sample size. And they called me and they said, should we do it? I'm like, hell yeah, you should try and see what happens. And I think everyone was, I was, as well as the lab was a little surprised. But again, kudos to Purdue for letting people see how it operates. I think that's good for consumers. But the reality is Purdue needs to deal with salmonella in the eggs and salmonella in the 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 chicks before they wind up coming to the slaughterhouse because and that's the problem with the industry and problem with government is you know, that frankly the industry would be better off if the government said you have to test eggs you have to test flocks and if the flocks or the eggs test positive for salmonella you got to destroy it and eventually we would continue to lower the amount of salmonella that was in those flocks and coming into our slaughterhouses. And why that doesn't, <laughs> I you know, I get it. Personal responsibility and don't tell me what to do kind of stuff. But it's still, I think it's counterproductive to the overall thing. But the one thing, and I, I, this is really important, I'm, I wanted to say is is that You know, most foodborne illness outbreaks are never figured out, you know, of the 1.4 million salmonella cases every year, you know, maybe 10,000 of those ever figure out it's, oh, that's what made me sick. So the public doesn't have that sense of attribution. Oh, that's what made me sick. I'm going to call my congresswoman. Most of the time, they're like, my kid got sick with salmonella i have no idea what made them sick and so that's what makes it you know the government kind of knows because they do all kinds of testing and they they know the, what chickens test positive and how that how that impacts humans but they don't tell the humans that kind of thing but you know you know part of the reason why consumers aren't beating the doors down to get change is is that they don't have enough information
0: so yeah yeah so i want to ask you something that had nothing to do with the documentary but just out of my own curiosity so we're starting to see like a rise in lab grown meat like beyond meat impossible foods things like that from a food safety perspective what things should consumers be on the lookout in that aspect because now you're not talking about ground ground beef, quote unquote, do you still cook it to 155? You know, we're talking about lab grown meat now. So what are we, what should we be on the lookout there?
1: So I think, I think the things that you're going to have to be, you know, paying attention to is you may be able to not have to be so concerned about, you know, fecal problems like salmonella, Campylobacter, E. coli. What I would be worried about is like listeria. You know, uh, Listeria is an environmental pathogen, you know, it loves cool, wet environments. I got to think where they, I've, I've never been to a place where they grow lab beef, but my guess is that it's a cool, wet environment and, you know, and, but Listeria gets into cracks and crevices and, you know, and, uh, you know, those products become contaminated, um, you know, and so I think that's one of the big risks, same thing with, uh, you know, uh, uh, hydroponic, uh, uh, you know, grown leafy greens. Um, is it safer to grow them indoors than outdoors across the street from a CAFO? Probably, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can like ignore science, you know, because the seeds can be contaminated. The seeds are raw agricultural products and the water can become contaminated. So, there's different ways that you know you try to solve a problem and try to then convince people that you've solved the problem, and you've just made the problem. It's just different. And so, you know, these bugs are good at doing what they do. I mean, their job is to make as many of us sick as possible. So we're, delivering diarrhea and vomit as far as we can so we make other people sick because that's what bugs want us to do and try not to kill as many people as they can. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to kill people. They want us to survive and, you know, make other people sick. So, you know, I think when you, sometimes when you fix something or you think you're fixing something, you're just shifting the problem to something else. And I know that I don't mean to make that sound like, um, you know, oh, my God, then we're never going to solve these problems. But I think it just requires humans to think ahead of, like, when they're going to make a change, how that's going to impact, you know, everything else.
0: So I, I, I got to tell you, Bill, this has been very depressing. <laughs> give, me, give me a glimmer of hope. I got a, I got a bag of spinach in my fridge, and I got chicken defrosting in the fridge for dinner tonight. How can I not die for dinner tonight? <laughs> give me Give me a glimmer of hope here. So
1: so yeah I mean you know uh, cook the spinach I love cooked spinach with so a little lemon it'll be great and then you know just cook your chicken to an internal temperature of 165 and you're good to go and just be <laughs> careful just be careful how you handle it so I mean I, to me one of the best scenes in the whole movie was that uh, the scene of the mom and the little kid in the kitchen and you know try I mean that I think is that, that is true. That's, that's how things happen. And that's why sometimes you can't attribute illnesses to the food that, you know, failing to cook it. I mean, think how complex that issue was, you know
0: yeah yeah that scene was was very interesting that was really well done and, and i and i got to thinking about you know when i work in the kitchen and i'm cooking dinner for tonight for for instance i'm like oh gosh i gotta be like really more uh self-conscious of what's going on uh yeah. but bill i want to thank you for your time thank you oh, so sure. much for for Great coming on the you. pod yeah, yeah good to meet you too yeah. um so where can people find you how can they follow you on on uh the social media and, and all yeah. that
1: so so um, i mean I'm at marlerclark.com. We're in Seattle. Um, um, I pontificate about food stuff on marlerblog.com. Um, I urge everybody to, you know, subscribe to Food Safety News. Um, I'm the owner publisher, but I tend, I don't like tell the folks what to write. I they do their own thing, and it's a, you know, it's a great uh, sort resource for people in the industry and government. Um, you know, we've got over it's been going since 2009. There's over 60,000 subscribers, 4 million unique visitors a month, um, you know, and they do, I think, do a really good job of, you know, kind of trying to keep it down the middle on, you know, food safety issues and making sure people are aware. So, you know, I think you can, you know, get some good information out there and, you know, cook your – Cook your stuff right and wash your hands. That's the my. I'll leave you with that.
0: So that's pretty pretty much it, right? Cook it, cook it yep. to death, and yep. wash your hands.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So, well, Bill, well, thank you.
1: Thanks a lot. Thank Rich. You.
0: Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. And if you haven't caught it on Netflix yet, the the documentary is "Poison: The Dirty Truth About Your Food." Uh, it was a top ten, I think, when it first it came out, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was top ten for a couple of weeks, and you know, I mean, it was like I was having friends from. Uh, you know, Europe and Africa sitting. It's like, you're the number one documentary in South Africa or your number one documentary in Romania. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's crazy. But I think that it's it's died down a little bit. I think, uh, you know, uh, the appetite for ruining your appetite, you know, uh, probably is waxed and waned a bit. But uh, I still think it's a, you know, I think it's, it's still a good, uh, you know, thing for consumers to to watch uh, and uh, I think they can learn a lot
0: yeah definitely and ironically another lawyer show took over the number one spot suits I don't know if you keep up with, yeah. with that kind of stuff I thought that was kind of ironic <laughs> yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah. again thank you for your time and, and for those out there catching on Netflix it's available now to stream uh, anywhere you get Netflix so thank Thanks. you again for your time and sure have sure. a good rest of the
1: day alright you too have a good weekend too